listening to episode 38, chapter 2 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lamberth. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that He would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. And today, we're continuing our conversation with Jeff and Sid Holsclaw. Sid and Jeff are both pastors at Vineyard North in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sid is also a ministry and life coach and a spiritual director. And Jeff is an affiliate professor of theology at Northern Seminary and is the co-author of Prodigal Christianity. They have been married for 20 years and have two teenage boys. Why is it that we struggle to find joy? If joy comes from relationships, either with God or other people, the loss of joy then comes from the loss of those relationships. In this chapter, Jeff and Sid unpack a bit of a big picture look at the story the Bible tells of the way our joy died. We now know what it's like to feel the loss of joy. We know what it's like to feel shame. And a lot of our actions are motivated from a desire to hide from shame or to get back our joy. The problem is we're terrible at doing this, and our attempts usually create more of a mess than when we started, which leads to a never-ending cycle. The good news is we have a way to get our joy back. The main story of Scripture is that God is the God who wants to be with us and the God who wants to work through us. It means he wants to restore his relationship with us to give us back our joy. In short, he wants to restore our identity as his beloved children. He wants us to know that he delights in us. If we're looking at Jesus' life and journey and he restores joy unto us, we have to ask, what happened to our joy? And we've already alluded to it that it's a sin problem. But so you guys do something that I love in your book, and you sort of just walk us through a biblical theology. You don't use that term to introduce it, which, again, I love it, but (laughs) that's what it is. And so talk to us a little bit about the fall, because, and and then I, I want you to even explain this because you you talk about the fall in the first three chapters of Genesis in a way that it was really unique in that you don't start in chapter one and go all the way through three. You, you tell the story backwards. And I think you make a really profound point with that. So can you tell us uh, about the fall and why that was the death of joy? Well, we, we really kind of, um, I've been lecturing and teaching this with students, you know, for several years And I think one of the things we see in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, you know, are are forced out of the garden is they're told uh, that there's this flaming sword and cherubim guarding the way back, guarding the way back to the tree of life and to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, And the idea that that the cherubim are there is is really important um, because we only see cherubim just a couple times all throughout the Bible. There's actually cherubim. Moses was commanded to sow like uh, pictures of cherubim into the fabric that covered the Holy of Holies. So there are three different spaces within the tabernacle and that, that like center space where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the actual cherubim were stitched in there. And then on the Ark, there are actually two cherubim that are of gold that are on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then in Ezekiel's vision of seeing God and God's glory kind of out in the plains and leaving Jerusalem, those are cherubim that are there. So cherubim are like the secret police of God. Whenever the secret police are around, you know the president is nearby. And it's the same thing with cherubim um, in the Bible. And so uh, 
Eden was a place, and really in one sense, before the fall, all of creation was meant to be a place of God's presence, and Adam and Eve were made for God's presence. So the way I talk, uh, the way we talk about it in the book is that um, the problem that Genesis 3 presents, I would say ancient readers when they're reading, paying attention closely, is not the problem of what is God going to do about our sin, although that's an important problem, and praise the Lord, God takes care of our sin. But the most important problem that re- ancient readers would have read when they got through the first three chapters of the Bible would have been, uh-oh, where's God's presence? It's lost. Like, we're banished. We are blocked from God's presence. And then you get a whole bunch of chapters, those horrible chapters in Genesis where people are just killing each other. Then you have the flood and you have the Babel. Those are basically like, that's what happens to us when God's presence is not here. And then you get the call of Abraham and God's like, I got to bring blessing back into this situation. And, so, and then you get the, you know, the history of salvation which is a history of God taking care of the sin problem, but it's for the most important reason of reestablishing his presence. Um, and I think that that's sometimes we read our Bibles wrong when we're just reading through, how's God going to fix sin? How's God going to fix sin? Certainly God does fix sin, but he does it so that he can be with us. That's the whole point. So I don't know, did I get it to your, nope, I get it to nope, your question? No, that's great. That's, that's, <laughs> and that's a great summary of, of that, that biblical story. And it, it all comes back to the moment when we sinned and there is something that's broken within us. And that comes back to this idea that we are created in God's image, right? We, we, we're created in the image of God. And um, then that sort of plays out throughout the rest of Scripture in that way of, uh, well, I, I'll let you define it. You have two definitions that you, you hit upon in the book all the time with, with that image, and that's God with us and God through us. Tell us a little bit about the significance of the image of God and then how God with us and God through us plays out because of that image. Yeah. So if you go back again to the way that ancient readers would have read the whole creation narrative, uh, you know, the understanding in the ancient world is that when a temple was built for a god, the god wasn't said to actually dwell there until the idol or his image was installed within the temple. And then once the idol had been installed, then it was said to be that the god was present in that place. So when God creates humanity in his image and breathes life into them, um, what he's saying is, you are the people of my presence. You are the, you are the marker of my presence. Where you are, I am. Um, so there's that that belonging in God's presence. As the image of God, we belong in God's presence. That's what we're made for. It's our purpose. It's what we show to the world. And so all throughout Scripture, we're sort of dealing with that loss of humanity's ability to be in the presence of God, which is really, we're not really living into our image of God if we're not able to be in God's presence. And then the second piece of that understanding of an image is that also in the ancient world, there would have been idols marking the edges of territory for different kings. So when you would walk up to a di- to a line of statues of a particular king, you would clearly know, oh, this is so-and-so's land. And as soon as I cross over this border, I am now under the rule and reign of that king. And so again, as images of God, we are the markers of his rule and reign. And so wherever humanity is, God's rule and reign is supposed to be in place in the places where humanity is. And it's God's good rule and good reign. It's his blessing that he longs to give to all nations. And so we have this, we belong in God's presence, which is God with us. And then we are called to bless all, all of life. We're flourishing all of life. And that is God through us. And so both of those things come from our createdness in God's image. How is that broken? <laughs> How is that <laughs> broken? <laughs> well, it's, it's in one sense that we are kind of 
without God's presence now, uh, or without the level of God's presence that we were made to be, to be. And so we're wandering around, we're trying to find it. Um, and then the other thing is that we've now kind of lost our purpose is humanity is not rooted and certain in its purpose. And so we're trying to find our significance. And usually our presence is, we talk about like being in the family, uh, that's the presence. And then, uh, our purpose is we talk about kind of joining the family business as God has a family business of bringing life. Um, and those two things flow one from the other. So we're in the family. So we partake of the family business, but most of us try to find our identity through the things we do. We try to be really good at something so that then we can feel good about who we are. And so we've actually reversed the direction of how these things are supposed to connect in our lives. And that's why the brokenness of the fall, since we're root rootless in our presence, then we're trying to find everything in our purposes, whether it's pleasing other people, being really successful, getting a lot of money, making sure people really like us, uh, raising great kids, right? And whenever those things fail, then our identity is threatened, which is where the shame and the fear, the anxiety and the anger um, come from. And they start overwhelming our life because we're not rooted in the presence. We're trying to find that presence. Mm. That's great. Yeah, for me personally, uh, that attempt to <laughs> kind of find my identity in other things was actually in doing the things of the Christian life. So like I, I grew up in the church. Um, my parents did some missions work. My dad was always either a deacon, worship leader, stuff like that. And so I was always the one who was uh, the son of my parents out there doing all this great stuff. And so in my mind, I think I had to live up to the expectations of a, a kid in that position. And so I think subconsciously that kind of formed my, my thinking that to be a successful Christian I have to do the things that Christians do successfully. And I connected that to my identity in such a way that when that failed, as it inevitably does with anybody who's trying to to find their identity outside of just being in relationship with God, uh, it, it tore my world apart. And so really for me, the last six years, seven years has been a journey uh, of understanding my identity in the way that you're talking about. So I, that really, really, really resonates with me. Yeah. And I think for me, um, well, Jeff just poked me and told me to say one thing. I was going <laughs> to say something different. Uh, I was going to say that I, I have, I can really resonate with what you're saying because I think when I first started staying home with my kids, you know, that's when I left, it felt like nobody sees what I do all day. Nobody has any idea like what I'm doing in the world. And, you know, you, I would meet people and they'd say, so what do you do? Oh, I'm a stay at home mom. It's like the conversation just fell flat. Mm. That was a really hard season for me because I was like, I'm not doing anything imp like, and you know, now that I understand brain science the way I do, I know what I was doing was incredibly significantly important. But at the moment it was like, I've been removed from the world and I feel like I've been benched, you know, like I don't feel like I'm doing anything worthwhile or important. And it did really question, like it ate away at my identity um, and so that was really good to go, to be restored to, well, our identity actually flows from our identity in Christ. And if we go back to Jesus's baptism mm -hmm. where he goes and, and this is the thing Jeff told me to say, so I'm back on track. <laughs> uh, but when we go back to the baptism of Jesus, we see that before Jesus has done anything right before he's performed any miracles or cast out any demons or healed any sick people, um, he's in the waters of baptism and in that humility, 
of, of being, of surrendering himself and submitting himself. Then we see that when he emerges from the waters of baptism, you know, the, the heavens tear open and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove on him. And we hear the father's voice. You are my son with you. I am pleased. And when we put our faith and hope and trust, and we, we are brought into the pleasure of God through Christ. And so it's not just that we're cleansed from all of our sin and made righteous, which is also true, but we're also brought into that delight and that joy. And so those same words that God the Father spoke over Jesus saying, you are my son and with you I am pleased, those words are ours too when we're in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I, where I, our identity should begin, right? Is that in Christ, we are all beloved children and God is pleased with us before we've done anything. Yeah. And that's huge. Like I still struggle mm -hmm. with like, oh, but I'm not doing enough or I yeah. haven't done it right. Yeah. And but no, God spoke those words of delight be not based on what Jesus had done, but on the fact that he's his son. Yeah. And he's and and he is, right? Mm -hmm. No, I, <laughs> I know it, it that's the hardest thing to get your head around. Just stop and have an altar call right here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I mean, I could, I could preach for days about that. It's so exciting. Yeah, but it is. But when you say altar call, you, I know you're kidding. But in one sense, in one sense, we're not because. Oh no! Yeah, I'm not. Uh, that no, I yeah right because th that's like the foundational moment where we're all seeking. But in Christ, um, the Father does say the same things over us. For those of us who follow Christ, who you know seek Him as our savior and Lord, however you in your different, you know, church traditions talk about that. Uh, but the reality is, um, if only when the father stops delighting in the eternal son, will our heavenly father stop delighting in us. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is that's never going to happen. Never going to happen. And so as long as we are new creatures in Christ, um, the father will always be delighting in us, um, and saying those words, even if we keep, you know, screwing up our life or even, you know, even though we don't quite do the things we want to do. And that's, that's the reality. That's the truth that we have to keep clinging to. And later in the book, we just talk about the power of words and the need, like we talked about gratitude, but the need to keep reminding ourselves of these truths, um, rather than all the stories and the messages that we get at from our childhood, from our business life, from our family life and these types of things. Right. So I think often the shame and the condemnation that we all experience of feeling like, oh, I don't, I can't believe those words or those words must not be true. That I think a lot of that is the separation that we experience because we know that we are stepping away from that life and that pleasure that God is giving to us. And so it's not because God condemns us. It's because we really we're condemning ourselves mm -hmm. and saying, oh, it's it's all me. Um, but that God is always offering that that pleasure, always extending that invitation. And it's it's you know, when we've turned away, that's when we experience the condemnation. But it's not because God is giving that to us. It's because we just feel that distance and that separation. And that's where the repentance and the turning back toward God, he's always there ready to, ready to lavish us again, like the prodigal father on the son. I love what Sid said about how our feelings of shame is us feeling our separation from God. This means God isn't the reason he feels distant. It's a product of our shame. The distance is a result of us turning away from God. I find this encouraging because as someone who often doesn't feel deserving of love, I can know that God's love for me doesn't depend on anything I do. Whether I do everything right or I fail and make a mess of my life, 
God's love for me springs forth from the love that he has for his son, Jesus. So while I might have a hard time accepting that God loves me, I know he loves his own son. So the question becomes, how do I learn to accept this love and turn back towards God? Start by spending time with him. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha's desire to serve Jesus was motivated by her own desire to produce. But Jesus simply wanted her to sit down and be with him like Mary. So sit with Jesus. Don't feel like you have to read your Bible or meditate or even talk. Perhaps all you need to do is listen. And I believe as you are able to quiet your heart before the Father, you will hear him whispering, I love you and I want to be with you. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Sid and Jeff's work, check out DoesGodReallyLikeMe.com. Then check out the next chapter in our conversation, where Sid and Jeff tell us how we can move from shame to identity in Christ. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to DailyGrowthDiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.